Hi, welcome to the Two Journeys podcast. This is episode 40 in the book of Hebrews titled Ethical Implications of the New Covenant, where we discuss Hebrews chapter 13, verses 1 through 6. I am Joel Harford, and I'm here with Pastor Andy Davis. Andy, we have taken a turn in the book of Hebrews, and chapter 13 really begins the the practical implications of all that the author has been given us. What are we going to see here in verses 1 through 6? Well, a bunch of of, um, simple exhortations or commands about the Christian life. And I'd like to see it in the overall kind of outline or order that we've been giving for the entire book of Hebrews, um, which was a superior mediator, Jesus Christ, brings a superior covenant, the new covenant, resulting in a superior life, the life of faith. Now, I, I would say the life of faith section starts in chapter 11, so we could continue it on 11, 12, 13, but here we're going to have very practical aspects of the life of faith. What do new covenant Christians, new, new covenant people, how do they live with each other? Uh, what practical uh, implications are there for being genuine followers of Jesus Christ? Right. Well, for the sake of our audience, I'm going to read verses 1 through 6. Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember those who are in prison, as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated, since you also are in the body. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? So why do you think the author concludes his letter with a series of, I would say, very practical commands? Well, Christianity is a real-world religion in which our doctrine, our convictions of heart, then flow out into the actions of our bodies. And so in my book, Infinite Journey, I argue that knowledge feeds faith and that knowledge and faith together transform our hearts. And out of a transformed heart or inner nature, then we live our lives, we move our bodies, we do actions. And so uh, here we're going to have some very practical implications of a life of faith. Now, keep in mind that the author, just like uh, we have with other epistles, primarily Paul, but also Peter and other, other New Testament writers, are concerned about local church life and how these local churches are dealing with each other. And so he's going to address that. Why do you think he begins with brotherly love? Well, it's just... Um, you know, first of all, it's the consummation of the second great command. So the first and greatest commandment is to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second uh, command is to love your neighbor as yourself. But, uh, uh, the relationship of a brother in Christ is, is more intense and more committed than that of a neighbor. So the idea is we have to love the brothers and sisters in Christ. We have to have a heart of affection. If we don't, we're not Christians. First John makes that plain. If you don't love your brother whom you have seen. How can you claim to love God whom you have not seen? If you, if you say you love God and you don't love your brother, then you're a liar. Actually, First John's very clear about this and very strong. So the horizontal brotherly love aspect is pretty vital for, for proof that we are in a right relationship with God. But I think it goes beyond that. Let's keep in mind that the Jewish community of Christians here were under intense persecution. 
and some of the people had been incarcerated for their faith. They were imprisoned. And so they were dependent on Christians loving them enough to bring them food and blankets and medical care, whatever they needed to stay alive while they were in prison. And so the idea here is, and he's going to say, remember your fellow prisoners as you were in prison with them. So that's a very practical issue. So I think it has to do with their setting as well. Yeah. Speaking of their setting, do you think the, the command, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, has a different meaning than it would for us? Because I'll be honest, when I hear that, I would be very hesitant to welcome a stranger into my house and give them shelter. Uh, is it just because I'm resisting a biblical command, or is there some nuance that fits their context? Well, I think there is a slight difference, um, you know, or maybe even a significant difference between their culture and ours. Um, I was telling you before we went on the podcast of a trip I made with my son Calvin, and, you know, it was two in the morning. Uh, we were traveling. We got in a very late start because my plane flight was delayed by five hours. And so when we wanted a, a place to stay, we weren't banging on some neighbor's house or looking for some Christians somewhere. We were going to a motel uh, and paying money and then laying down. Now, they had those back then, too. But I think, especially given the very strong dichotomy between darkness and light, between believers and unbelievers, etc., it's very desirable to have Christian brothers and sisters who can put you up for the night, who can care for you. As a matter of fact, Paul says um, very plainly that, um, actually it's more, I'm sorry, not Paul, but John, in Second John and Third John, there's, there's a sense of welcoming in messengers of the gospel um, so maybe these are Christians, but yeah. they're just not personally known by they this don't know group. Them, yeah, but they have maybe letters of recommendation, or people, you know, say welcome. And I myself, and probably you have too, been welcomed in by people we didn't know, but they knew we were on mission, we were serving the Lord in some way, and we stayed at their house. That's happened to me dozens of times, maybe more more than that. So the idea is that we have been um, welcomed in and we're part of a worldwide network of brothers and sisters. Uh, so I think back then there was a little bit of a different culture. I think also about the days of Jonathan Edwards. I was reading about uh, Sarah Edwards, what a remarkable woman she was, and the, the parsonage or manse, et cetera, was somewhat of a hotel. You know, Christians would come from other places and they'd heard of her husband's writings, et cetera, and they, they'd be putting them up for a while. So, um, yeah, there's the, just this aspect of a worldwide brotherhood of, of brothers and sisters in Christ who, when they travel, uh, need to be put up and need to be cared for. Hmm. Now, the author drops kind of a bomb here in the middle of this verse. He says, you know, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Hmm. What does this mysterious verse mean? Wow. Actually, puts a serious question in my mind. Are you an angel, Joel? I am not. I think okay. my sin pattern shows right, that. Right, right. So we've, we've cleared that. It's really it is provocative because you're like uh, unawares means they look every bit like human beings, and so it's it really stretches our understanding of angels. It says earlier in chapter one, are not all angels ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation? Sometimes angels can seem quite physical. They can certainly do physical things, like the angel that moved the stone in front of Jesus' tomb and rolled it back and sat on it. Um, you know, an angel struck Peter on the side and woke him up. Um, so they're not like, you know, wispy cloud beings or something like that. But they're not human, so I don't, I don't fully understand how it all works. But their, their physicality or apparent physicality can be so great 
that they can appear as human. So we have to think this is a timeless teaching and can and does go on even today. But unawares means we don't know it. How could we? I think biblically we're talking probably, there's a strong case that discussing the angel of the Lord and two other angels that appeared to Abraham and Sarah a year before Isaac was born, that you know, the angel of the Lord gave the news that Sarah would, be, would have a son a year within a year. And um, you know, Abraham had ordered Sarah and his household to quick uh, and prepare you know, some food and um, some flour and all that and, and some biscuits and some meat. And, you know, and they seem to sit down and eat. I find that interesting. I'm not quite sure how all that works. Angelic digestion or something like that. I don't know what it is, but it is very provocative. But the idea here, just going with what the writer has written here, is that you never know you know, who you're dealing with. You could be dealing with a very powerful being, and so it's an inducement to show hospitality. What else can we say? That's how it functions in the text. Yeah, I guess God could be testing you to see if you provide hospitality in such a way when he's laid a door open for you. Yeah. yeah. Conversely, I mean, we got Lot, and Lot showed hospitality to two of those angels, whereas the men of Sodom and Gomorrah in a major way were not hospitable at all. It's the biggest and, understatement you've ever made. Yeah, to, put it, to put it mildly, <laughs> and uh, look what happened to them. So I'm not saying if you treat people poorly, but you just don't always know who you're dealing with. Yeah. I want to ask you one more question about the prison. He says, you know, remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them and those who are mistreated since you also are in the body. Now, you've already, already explained why it's a big deal for a Christian to go visit another Christian and how they have to care for them in prison because yeah. uh, they didn't exactly provide three meals a day and cable sure. television. Yeah. And so uh, you, if you went, you'd be in danger of being incarcerated with them. Yeah. But he gives this reason. He says, since you also are in the body. Yeah. What is he teaching there? Well, we're all part of the body of Christ. And I think 1 Corinthians 12, 26 says, concerning the body with many members. So he's got a very strong body image there in 1 Corinthians 12. Um, it says when one part of the body suffers, the whole body suffers with it. So you imagine if you have a toothache or a sig- more significant pain. Imagine if you're, you're receiving chemotherapy or something for cancer. And I mean, the entire body is struggling, even though there's one, only one part that's afflicted. So that's the idea is that we're all one. But I want to say a few things more about prison ministry in general. Um, in context, I think this is talking about visiting other Christians or caring for other Christians. So let's just stop with that for now. Uh, because of the small world that we live in now through technology, we are much more aware of prisons being, uh, sorry, Christians being persecuted in other countries. Uh, Voice of the Martyrs and Persecution Project and other, uh, others let us know of the suffering church around the world. And this is a strong inducement for us to remember them in prayer, to find specific circumstances. Sometimes pressure has been brought to bear on governments to cause certain pastors to be released. Uh, Presidents and senators and others have interceded for pastors who have been unjustly incarcerated in uh, in other countries. And so um, I think it's it's to show an interest in the suffering church, the persecuted church. That is, I think, a good application of this verse. But then, more broadly, uh, Chuck Colson, when he was alive, he was strongly involved in prison fellowship. And it's just a tremendous ministry to non-Christians. And so the ability to, uh, to reach out with the gospel. And this verse doesn't preclude that. It's not strongly saying. It just yeah. says, remember those in prison. Well, and if, if some get saved through the ministry, now you have brothers and sisters in prison. Yeah, and then you have Bible studies and all that. And so it's very much a teachable moment um, for, uh, for an unconverted elect person. They've been brought to the end of the rope. 
and they need somebody to come and be a light shining in a dark place. So this strongly advocates for prison ministry. Yeah. The author says, let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. This phrase, let marriage be held in honor among all, what does this have to do with the Hebrews' suffering and, and persecution uh, in that context? And then I have some contemporary applications I want to ask you about. Well, I, I think it's hard for me anyway to see the direct connection to the main themes of the book. I think at this point the author is just more dealing pastorally with things that are going to be normally dealt with by church members. And marriage is the most significant relationship, human relationship there is in the world. And so the idea is if you're going to have a healthy church, um, you're going to have to have healthy marriages. And so fundamental to that is sexual purity. So that's the best I can make of it. I don't think that this really fits with the flow of the argument of all the things we've been talking about, the supremacy of Christ and the new covenant. But we are talking about uh, the New Covenant producing a better life. And so the idea is that New Testament um, believers should have better marriages than Old Testament you know, followers alone. That, that the power of the Holy Spirit, the transformed nature, should make husbands more like Christ to their wives and wives more submissive like the church to Christ. It just makes a healthy marriage. Now here it's specifically talking about sexual purity. And again, this is a very stern warning. The idea is that God judges those who are sexually immoral. This is one of this is a tremendous weakness in our fallen nature. And we can just tell by how much Satan appeals to it. I mean, the advertisements that go after the, the sexual images and internet pornography and all of those kinds of, of issues that people deal with, and then just simply adultery, you know, and fornication and other sexual sins that are going on right now. And the idea here is that we have to take uh, the idea that our God is a consuming fire and apply it to what he says here, the marriage bed, and that we should have a terrible fear of touching another man's wife or a wife touching another woman's husband, of, of being sexually immoral. How can we best today um, hold marriage in honor among all? Obviously, the, the yeah. uh, obeying the prohibitions against sexual immorality, but today... Uh, especially in our current uh, climate, uh, just the, the notion of marriage has gotten really weird, you know, especially yeah. with the Obergefell decision and, um, and, and the society thinking it's okay for two men or two women to get married. Mm -hmm. How can we Christians best hold marriage in honor among all? Well, I thought a lot during the battle over gay marriage, uh, so to speak, um, which you just referred to, just how difficult it is for us Christians to make the case for um, for marriage as we understand it, apart from the Bible, it, it's. It, I think you're best. You're going to be arguing from common law experience, you know, and just just general societal statistics and things like that. So for me, I just prefer to just simply argue from the Bible that this is how the Bible defines marriage. Well, I don't recognize the Bible. Fine, just telling you what God says. From the beginning, He made them male and female and brought them together, one man, one woman, for life in a covenant. And so God makes marriages, and he's never changed. And so part of marriage being held in honor is that we understand how God defines marriage and that we continue courageously to stand firm against homosexuality, against lesbianism, LGBTQ, all those things are, um, are really a satanic assault on human beings, including very much so those that are involved. Uh, they are sadly deceived, and they need to be ministered to, as any sinners do. They need to be ministered to 
with the gospel. Of course, yeah. With the gospel. But you have to have to start with, with right definitions of humanity, of sin, and of marriage. And marriage is one man, one woman in a covenant relationship for life. That's what marriage is. And that needs to be held in honor. Yeah. Well, let me say one other thing. There's a whole other angle I want to take, and that is that we need to understand, you know, we need to not ever forbid marriage, as some ascetic groups did, and even as the Roman Catholic Church has um, forbidden their priests from being married. It doesn't seem like marriage was held in honor by the medieval Catholic Church. Um, it seemed like that was at a, a very low level of spirituality. If you if you had to have a a wife or a husband, you know, and then you're a second-class citizen. The real spiritual athletes were the monks, the priests, the nuns, those that forsook, that took vows of celibacy. That's not really honoring marriage there. It's actually more denigrated by that approach. Especially since a lot of them had uh, love childs in the village. immorality, you know, and, and so this verse would have helped for them to basically raise that whole system and establish a biblical system of a godly, you know, pastoral marriage. Yeah. The author then moves on to uh, to money and greed. He said, Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Why is a life of contentment and, um, and a life free from the love of money so important for a Christian? Yeah, this is a very important verse on the topic of contentment. I wrote a book um, you know, on Christian contentment. Uh, and my home base was in Philippians 4 where Paul says, I've learned the secret of being content in any every every situation, so Paul's just saying, "I've learned how to be content," and he's clearly commending contentment to the Philippians. But here, the author to Hebrews isn't commending it; he's commanding it: "Be content." So there it is. <laughs> so we are told to be content. Now, what is contentment? Contentment is a realization that uh, it's it's first of all, in a simple way, contentment is a combination of peace and joy. So you have a, a happy peacefulness about your circumstance or in the midst of your circumstances. And you're accepting your earthly circumstances because you know, as we just said in the last podcast, that everything physical is temporary. The, the, your life does not consist in the abundance of your possessions. So you're not going to be happier if you make more money or if you have a better house. So just be content and live a simple life and that will free you up. Time, energy, money will free up those resources for the kingdom. So uh, conversely, covetousness, greed is a form of idolatry. It's a terrible way to live. And then even people can be covetous and idolatrous even if they have, have very simple means they, because of what's going on in their heart. They wish they had more money. They're constantly fretting over their earthly circumstances. That's not being content with what you have. Yeah, greed and, and idolatry of money afflicts both rich and the poor alike. It does. So. And Paul says uh, the love of money is the root of all forms of evil or all kinds of evil. And this text would say almost exactly the same thing. Keep your life free from the love of money. Not keep your life free from money. There are some philanthropists that have made tens of millions and given tens of millions away. So for them, the command is not keep your life free from money. It's make as much as you can and give it away. You have a gift for business. But to all Christians, it's keep your life free from the love of money. And that's the danger here. And the reason he gives is that he will provide for your needs. He, right. Everything you need. You were going to say something. No, that was the exact thing I was going to say. I was going to say, what's the reason? Yeah. Well, because God has promised to take care of us. You know, our real confidence of material, physical, healthy um, provision in the future is not money, but God. 
So, and, and it's like, well, you know, it's like, what, what system of currency are we, are we in the gold standard? Are we on the, and is it paper money? It's none of the above. It's God. God is our, our refuge, our provider, our sustainer. And he doesn't need money uh, in order to meet our needs. He frequently uses money. And if he chooses to do the normal thing that you pay for your own groceries with your own money, fine. But the point is that the real provider has never been and never will be money. It's always God has said, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. Now let's talk about that verse just even apart from context. It's a great verse. You know, it's a promise that God has made an abiding presence. You think about when Moses was, seemed like, terrified to go to Pharaoh and say, let my people go. He said, who am I that I should go to uh, Pharaoh? He said, I will be with you. You think about it more beautifully and poetically in the book of Isaiah. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. When you go through the fires, I will be with you. God has promised, I will never leave you, I'll never forsake you, meaning I will give you everything you need. Think also very poignantly of the Apostle Paul at the end of his life when he was on trial for his life. And he stood before Caesar, Nero, and basically evangelized him. But he says plainly in Second. Timothy 4, at my first offense, no one came to my support, but everyone deserted me. May it not be held against them. But the Lord stood at my side and gave me strength, so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed, and all the Gentiles might hear it, and I was delivered from the lion's mouth. What kind of sustaining grace and strength did Paul get from just having the Lord right there with him? Uh, he has never left me, Paul would say. He's been with me every step of the way. So what's the result of this uh confidence that we have in, in verse 5, knowing that he'll never leave us or forsake us. Well, I think what it does is it weans us off from relying on people, you know, and, and looking around. We say, look, you know, I have no terror of what man can do uh, to me, and I have no overweening confidence for what man must do for me. And my, my focus is entirely on God. And so we've got a certain boldness here, a certain confidence and independence because God is our refuge and strength. He is our provider and he will never leave us or forsake us. So we can say, as the text says, with boldness, with confidence, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. And so you've got that strong kind of confession. God will be with me. I will never give in to fear. And then this amazing statement, what can man do to me? What could human human beings do? Well, the answer is much. Yeah, uh, torture, <laughs> depriving of food, yes, death. Many things. But in a way, you know, when Jesus said, um, you know, do not store up treasure on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and thieves do not break in and steal. We could say cannot break in and steal. Um you are completely safe. Your true treasure is stored up in heaven. And concerning your body, it's true that they can make you, for a very short time, feel intense pain. And then after that, it's done. And so Jesus said, do not fear those who kill the body, and after that can do nothing more to you. But fear the one who, after the death of the body, has the power to destroy both soul and body in hell. That's God. So if God is your enemy, then you should fear death more than anything. But if God is your helper, like the text says, there's nothing man ultimately can do. Man can take away your soul, cannot take away your resurrection body, cannot take away your treasure in heaven. What can man do to me? There's a great story. I can't remember what book I read it in. It was about a 
a pastor. I think he was in Romania. And I hope I don't butcher it, but he was in jail and, and the communist authorities, they come in and they, you know, they, they threaten him. And basically they say, you know, we're going to, they say, we're going to send you to Siberia, which is obviously terrible, you know, very cold. And he says, you can send me to Siberia, but Christ will warm my heart. <laughs> and they say, well, we're going to put you in solitary confinement. And, and he says, oh, f- fine. He says, Christ, Christ can come right through the walls. He says, I'll, I'll be, I'll have all the company I need. <laughs> and they say, well, we will kill you. He says, well, hey, fine, kill me. I win in the end. If I'm dead, I'll depart and be with Christ. And they're just enraged at, <laughs> at the inability to do anything to this guy. Yeah. It's, it's amazing. Just like uh, one of the, the Roman martyrs, a woman, uh, I forget whether it's Perpetua or Felicitas, said, um, you know, while I live, I shall defeat you. And if you kill me, I shall defeat you even more. So, I mean, it's just, uh, yeah, there's just that confidence. But... If we are used to getting pleasure and fulfillment and success from material things, from Walmart or from restaurants or from a paycheck, then we will have less of a sense of the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? Uh, We're more vulnerable, actually, ironically. Yeah. Do you have any final comments on verses 1 through 6? Yeah, I mean, I think I just love the practicality of the New Testament of the Christian life um, and the fact that there are such practical things to to let brotherly love continue, that we should love each other, that we should offer hospitality, that we should remember those in prison, that our marriages should be healthy, our our relationship with money should be that it's just a tool, you know, to benefit certain earthly things, but it's not our ultimate reality that our trust is in God. So I just love to see how the the deep doctrine that we've been going through now these twelve chapters then gets really applied very practically. So it's pretty sweet. Yeah. Well, that was episode 40 in the book of Hebrews. Please join us next time for episode 41, Bearing the Reproach of Christ, where you discuss Hebrews chapter 13, verses 7 through 16. Thank you for listening to the Two Journeys podcast, and God bless you all. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.